0: think. Thanks, Brittany. You gave me the kind of introduction I can't live up to, so it's all downhill from there. But um, I am Dave Shelley, and I'm with International Students Incorporated, and we work with uh, really multiple organizations to reach out to the internationals that are here studying as university students, uh, from those that are just here for a short uh, project or those that are here for a, a semester of exchange. Studies or those that do four-year degrees or master students or doctoral students that might be here five or six years, uh, to the visiting scholars that uh, that come over here to do postdoctoral uh, study, uh, and some of them bring their children with them. So we've ended up having to do a, a wide range of uh, of ministries in order to take advantage of the opportunities that the Lord's bringing right to our community. Uh, the most user-friendly way for you to get involved if you have an interest in this is just offer to be a friendship family, which uh, fits into your schedule and your timetable and uh, basically we say, whatever you're doing, invite them along. And uh, you might want to talk to uh, Jeff and Ginger uh, Davidson or to Aaron who've, who've done this, um, if, you're, if you're interested at all in connecting with internationals while they're here studying. Um, We've really enjoyed it, and I want to thank you as a church for supporting the work that we do. You do it financially, uh, you've prayed for us, and, uh, and that, means, uh, that means a lot. We, we couldn't do it without uh, your backing, so thanks tremendously for that. Um, we're going to dive into uh, looking at James here, so I'd encourage you, if, if you've got a Bible handy, to, to turn to uh, James chapter 2. I'll actually be going back to chapter 1 also, but um, James chapter 2 on your, in your Bible or on your phone. You know the, the student who interrupts the teacher by raising a hand and asking, will this be on the test? Some of you know that student because you're teachers and some of you know that student because you've been that student. But teachers don't want to hear that question. And the reason that teachers don't want to hear that question is because it tells you the student isn't really interested in what the teacher is working hard to reveal. The student just wants to get by with the minimum necessary to to get done. See, the teacher's calling is to awaken the students to the truth and the glory of this world and to enable students to interact more meaningfully with it. Students who desire only to pass a test are pretty clueless about how this shapes them for the world that they interact with. People have had this problem ever since Adam and Eve chose to ignore the Creator and what He spoke to them. God speaks and people generally aren't all that interested in what He has to say. And when the Creator came to us in the flesh and He taught us in person, He was confronted with a religious culture whose whole system was driven by the question will this be on the test? They'd twisted everything God had told them into their idea of what should be on a test. And they ended up killing the teacher because he insisted that their tests missed the whole point of what God was saying. I was studying Jesus' teachings with a group of these internationals, and I started to notice a pattern in questions that would come up. But what do I have to do? What do I have to give up What will people think of me? Will it make me better than them? Will I be successful? Now, what's missing from that conversation? God. If we start with the idea that we can decide what's good and bad for ourselves while ignoring the one who gives us life, then we're never going to understand Jesus. If we wish only to pass a test, we're doomed to failure. See, Jesus wasn't interested in leaving us disconnected from the life giver. That was the whole point. So here's a different set of questions What do I need to do to know God in a personal way? What is it that God is saying? How do I do life with Him? How can I receive His Spirit? How can I be involved in the heavenly stuff? How can I have this eternal life and share it with others? See, that first set of questions assumes, I'm the most important person here. But the second set assumes this is about a relationship with the one who gives life and and with the world and the people that he has created for eternal purposes. If we read the Bible asking godless questions, we're never going to get God's answers. What was the problem with God's people throughout most of their history? Their default mode of operation was to think like the fear-based cultures around them. But salvation means deliverance from fear-based ways of living into faith-based ways of living. Fear-based thinking seeks to use a God because we're afraid of losing something. Fear-based thinking looks at everything in fear of losing something. Faith-based thinking seeks to know what the gracious Creator is doing and how I can join Him. Now, that's the Bible's whole context when we read a statement like this in James 2, verse 24. And there are some outlines that have this printed that are uh, on the chairs there. Uh, You can look at it in your own Bible here. Verse 24 says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. We read that verse and we ask, so will that be on the test? What do I have to do? And the question is raised for many of us because we know there are also verses like Romans 3.28, which says, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And we think, so faith is all that I do? Will that be on the test? It sounds like two very different answers to the same question. And then we read in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works, so nobody can boast. And we think, so it sounds as if the test has been canceled. So we can forget that we need to know anything, right? Right? James appears to be directly contradicting what Paul wrote to the Romans and to the Ephesians. But is he? Or can we rightly reconcile these verses of the Bible and understand what they are saying together? It's not a minor question, because these verses are talking about what it means to be in a life-giving relationship with God. So how can James 2.24 be reconciled to the good news that we read in Romans and Ephesians? And to answer that question... I'm going to try to do three things. First of all, look at the meaning of the words themselves. And then secondly, look at the train of thought that we've already been through here in the first two chapters of James. And then third, what difference that makes. So let's go to the first part. What do the words mean? You see that a person is considered righteous or justified, some of your translations say, by what they do and not by faith alone. And I want to zero in on three key phrases here that, that uh, will give us uh, some of the possible meaning. First of all, justified, or made righteous, means being brought into something that's already happening. The words just and righteous are from the same word in the original language of the New Testament, which is why some translations use one and some use the other. They're really, they're really synonyms in the Bible. Considered righteous can also be justified. Now, this phrase can mean that someone else is making the person just or righteous, and it can mean that the person becomes a participant in something that is already happening. So someone has made us participants in a justice and righteousness that was already here before we came into it. And that's what Romans chapter 3 says. Faith is counted as justice and righteousness through the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us and brings us into His life. He doesn't give us a life to take and run away from him. He brings us into His life. That's how we have His life. The goodness news of the Bible is not less than this. The Lord who created everything is forever purely good. He's the source of all goodness, all truth, all beauty. He created us to experience his goodness. But we aren't purely good. We desire to be judges of what is good and evil. And so we've turned our back on the Creator and made ourselves the final authority. And since there is no good apart from our Creator, it all comes from Him, we end up with corruption and death. And without Him, we can never recover what we've lost. So, what could, what could be done to save us from ourselves? We're our own worst enemies. Well, we would be doomed unless God could make a way to forgive us and save us. But how could God let us live in his glorious home while we remained corrupt? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be gaining for us. We need a way for the corruption to be condemned while saving and restoring the people at the same time. We need a surgeon who can kill the disease without killing the patient. And God did this by coming to us in the flesh as Jesus the Savior who died in our place and he took our corruption to the grave. And then he rose from death and showed that he has the power to overcome our sin and death. And the risen Jesus spoke peace to us and sent his forgiven people to spread the good news that we can receive life by trusting him again. And he said he will return to make a final end to corruption and death And those who reject him are rejecting the forgiveness and eternal life that he has, but those who trust him receive his good news and find it life-giving. And they will live in his glorious world forever, free from corruption and death. Romans 3 tells us that Jesus passed the test for us. His his life comes into us not through our self-righteousness, but through our trust in him, through the beginning of a relationship of following him. And God desires for us to have a trust relationship with him. Not to be worrying about a test, but to be with him. James 2.24 is talking about our participation in this life that Jesus gives. We don't have to make ourselves good enough to be saved. That's not the point at which James is talking about. We're saved through the goodness of Jesus, but once saved, we get to participate in his life because he brings us into his creative activity. So if you're thinking of it as a have-to, you may not be thinking of Jesus or of His Spirit at all. They are sort of set on the shelf while we focus on what we are doing. But if we use the language of obligation, then we're speaking the old fear of death, which we are freed from. If we use the language of grace, then we're spreading new life of faith. It's about knowing the life giver. Whatever good works may show up in our lives... They're God's good works because it all comes from Him. And James and Paul agree on that. So look at the second phrase. A person is considered righteous by what they do. And righteous by what they do or justified by their works or by their activity is what we see there. Meaning people who passively receive the Spirit are then animated by Him. It sounds at first here as if our actions are the direct cause of our justification so we think we have to pass a test but if this really means that god's spirit makes us participants in a justice which was already at work then this isn't about us be being self-righteous by our own work it's something much bigger than we are and it's already going on saying i have sung in a performance of handel's messiah is not the same thing as saying i wrote handel's messiah See, there's a big difference there. Participation in something is not at all like creating it. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 again. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is doing the good work that he planned to do and he does it by making us new creations in Christ Jesus and then shaping us with all our rough edges for his good purposes. Years ago, I got to spend some time in West Africa among native peoples there who were sharing the good news of of Jesus and with some missionaries that were working alongside the local people. And I saw a, a publishing center which was reaching all of French-speaking West Africa using equipment that was inferior to what my church back home had. And I saw doctors and nurses running what we would call a MASH unit, understaffed, under-equipped, vitally needed. And I saw a school getting by with little but staffed with excellent teachers who made me wish that I could be there to be a part of it. And I had two overriding impressions of this whole experience. First, these people were in conditions that were far from ideal. And second, they seemed to me far more joyful and encouraging than most people that I meet. They they weren't driven by a sense of obligation. I don't think they could have survived there if their only motivation was, I'm afraid of failure. They were compelled by a joy in what they were getting to do. And seeing how much it matters. In the Bible, Paul doesn't hesitate to describe to us his suffering. He goes through some horrible lists of things that he lived through. And yet he keeps calling it a work of grace that he was freed from his self-righteousness and made an ambassador to take the king's good news to the nations. Paul, who insists that we are justified by faith and not by our works, was intensely hardworking and self-sacrificing. Why? Not to earn the good news, he repeatedly insisted it wasn't for that reason, but because he was enthused by the grace that saved him. So what do we do with this third phrase that James uses, not by faith alone? Well, you see, faith, by definition, isn't alone. Not by faith alone, not by trust itself, not by belief only. See, in daily life, a trust relationship is not merely something we think. It's a relationship we live. In the Bible, faith is not merely agreeing with an abstract idea. Faith's a relationship. In fact, I prefer most of the time to use the the term trust because it's about relying on a person. The term trust puts the focus on the person who is trusted and not on the quality of the one who's trusting. Practically speaking... My wife, Lori, is sitting over here in the corner, um, not because she's done anything bad, but because uh, but I think it's because it's easy for a quick exit in case things go south. But, um, but very practically speaking, I trust my wife by relying on her loyalty and on her understanding and on her competence. So I'm trusting her not because I have no choice, but because I see her as worthy of my trust. And my trust in her then is not about me, it's about her. She's the one I trust. But in marriage, my trust isn't lifeless. I am an active participant in this marriage. Doing life with her is not earning for me marriage, that's already in existence. But I do what I do as a husband. It's much more than believing I'm married. I have a married life. I'm really not any good at it, but it's still different than if I weren't married, right? And those who have said yes to Jesus' proposal are like the bride who's awaiting her wedding. I mean, she expects to be with him, and that shapes how she thinks and what she does now. Brides aren't thinking, I've got to be with as many different men as possible because I'm going to lose this soon. That's that's not the way a bride thinks. She's preparing for this unity with the one that she loves. So does this explanation fit the context of James 1 and 2? What I want to do now is back up and kind of review everywhere that we've been in the study of James up to this point. Let's summarize by going to the, the first... There's only going to be four sections. The first 18 verses of the book... Are telling us God is doing good even through your suffering. The key verse here is the second verse in the book. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Count it as joy when you suffer, the book says right off the bat. I have a feeling James was trying to get our attention. James speaks to people who are suffering. Life is hard and he tells them that they can be joyful even about their suffering because God is growing them through it in those first 12 verses. And then God doesn't give evil to his people, he tells us. He's the giver of all good. At every moment, he's giving us physical and spiritual life, verses 13 to 18. So what's the setting here? God's people are knocked down by the world, and they know that they're in a fight for survival. And what's the assurance that James gives to us? The Savior isn't frustrated by your enemies. He's brought salvation through the cross, and through, uh, through suffering, he brings eternal good. Right away, James turns fear-based thinking upside down. By nature, when we suffer, we become afraid. How can I escape? How, how can I be secure? How, how do I get through this? We turn very self-focused. But James immediately tells us that suffering's not going to be the last word for God's people. We can know that. Fear is not then our true orientation. It's temporary and flawed. Faith is our orientation. Fear is not what defines our relationship with God. Eternal life is what defines our relationship. So even suffering is ultimately about joy. That's the first 18 verses. Then from verse 19 through the 7th verse of chapter 2, we see that we don't have to fear as the world does. We can be different. What kind of worship does God call us to? Not the toxic finger-pointing of the world, but rather to selfless love for for the needy. And the key verses here, uh, 26 and 27, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts. By the way, these may be the only two verses in the Bible that even use the term religion. The Bible's not really about religion. Newsflash. Okay. But continuing, religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James says, instead of being selfish and arrogant like the rest of the world... Be different. Take care of people who need help. And that is a very counterintuitive way to feel when you need help, right? If I need help, why would God tell me to care about widows and orphans? Well, here's why. And I'm grateful for some very wise people that spoke this into me at a fairly early age. If we begin to care about other needy people, our whole motivation changes. Our whole outlook changes. We don't aim to be king of the hill. That's what the whole world does, but it's not what Jesus did. We don't want to be known for putting others down. We want to help others up. But the needs overwhelming. To even begin to make a difference, we soon realize we're, we're totally dependent on God to provide. Well, and that's a radically different way of thinking. Jesus shifts our focus from fear to faith. Lord, we need you to provide. We're looking to you to provide. People brought by God's grace into God's justice aren't living only for themselves. They no longer have to play the self-righteous judge. They can join Jesus in helping to raise up the people whom the world has knocked down. That goes through the first seven verses of chapter 2. And then from verses 8 to 17... We see that being legalistic is self-defeating. Mercy is the only real way to live. The key verse here is in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. People who pull verse 24 out of context conveniently overlook verse 13. None of us is helped by looking down on others. We we all have fallen. We know this. So speak and act not by the rule of arrogance but by the rule of free mercy. What's the value of and claiming to trust Jesus if you go right back to self-righteousness. That's like telling a hungry person to stop feeling hungry. I'm hungry. Well, stop it! That doesn't do you any good. You leave them just as hungry. Telling a fallen person that they shouldn't fall doesn't help them get up. Verse 10 says very bluntly, none of us is righteous by being legalistic. It, It simply doesn't work. The Old Testament proved it. James agrees with Paul. Being judgmental is not only arrogant, it's counterproductive. It doesn't achieve what we're here for. It cultivates fear instead of faith. It doesn't make you righteous, it makes you unrighteous. Mercy makes a real difference. There's no life in a law that accuses. The true law that gives freedom is the mercy that triumphs over judgment. So then we get to the verses leading immediately up to verse 24, 18 through 23, and see that Abraham participated not by self-righteousness, self-righteous but by humility. James reminds us that Abraham lay his beloved son Isaac on the altar before God. If you want to read this story, you can just jump to Genesis 22. And we need to know two things about the story. First, Abraham's faith did not feel like something to be proud of. When you're offering up your child to God, it's not a thing that makes you feel superior. Faith doesn't always feel certain about an outcome. It may feel like a death, but that's when God surprises us. And the second thing to know about this story is that God did not destroy Isaac. He provided a substitute sacrifice, which is at the heart of the whole Bible, And the key verse here is verse 23, immediately preceding the verse we're focusing on. Abraham trusted God, or believed God, it's it's translated often, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. That's an interesting term for that, isn't it? Abraham trusted God, that's what God calls justice, that's what it means to be God's friend. And it doesn't help to say, well, you can lie there and have faith, but I actually got up. Hear the arrogance in that? What does that accomplish? How is that better than an accusing demon? Abraham wasn't just by being self-righteousness. He didn't exalt himself. He submitted to God's call, and God called him his friend. This isn't about arguing that you're more righteous than I am. Faith changes the way we think about all of that. We don't have to put others down because we've been lifted. We can join Jesus and Abraham in humbling ourselves and turning our dearest loves over to him and trusting him to provide. Are you claiming that your faith makes you superior to somebody else or are you trusting God and turning everything over to him? There is a difference, right? Fear prompts us to judge others, but faith prompts us to see that others need the same mercy that we need. One is legalism that brings judgment, but the other is mercy that brings life. And here's where verse 24 comes into the train of thought. A person becomes a participant in the justice that Jesus has mercifully provided. It's not as if trust leaves you alone in your fear-driven self-righteousness. That's not what active faith does. Trust frees us from fear and from the need to be king of the hill. Faith is not necessarily freedom from feeling fear. We still have feelings. But being faith-led is different from being fear-driven. Faith doesn't drive us to acts of self-righteousness. Trusting Jesus takes the need for self-righteousness completely out of the equation. We won't be consistently good at it. We're not finished products yet. Being good at faith isn't the point. But getting to do life by mercy instead of judgment that's different. That's different from the world. So what do these first two chapters of James tell us? Feeling out of control can be how we learn to trust God. Being rich doesn't make people better. It it often obscures what's really important. Being judgmental doesn't make people Christ-like. Being merciful does. Abraham wasn't righteous by being in control, but by entrusting his son to God. A so-called faith that leaves us enslaved to self-righteous thinking doesn't do us any good. Faith that doesn't move us into the current of God's mercy doesn't really mean anything. It's not real faith. And in that sense, Jesus and Paul and James are all saying the same thing. So, having looked at all that, what difference does it make? What does the application of this verse look like if it's not about making myself somehow righteous? Well, the eternal community of God's people will be free from the arrogance and the hatred and the cruelty and the corruption and the starvation and the abuse that are the pervasive failure of our world. In view of eternity, this makes a big difference the saved are going to enjoy unbroken love with the life giver so that all of our interaction and our work and our creativity and our play and our celebration are overflowing with grace and truth and beauty. That's what happens. So, newsflash, we are not yet fully there. We are not yet experiencing the heavenly state. We experience the heavenly in some situations more than others. We know from experience, partly because we're unfinished people. So until then, we're living by faith. Let's be honest. Faith doesn't mean that we've already seen victory over all the sin and all the brokenness in our own lives. That's not what faith means. When we are conscious of our inconsistency, we get discouraged. And then we question the relationship that we have with God. And then we make matters far more difficult when we talk with each other as if this was all simple That's a lie. And as if some of us have mastered this, so why haven't you? And that may be the most demonic lie. We don't recognize our own self-righteousness. So we tend to battle self-righteousness in others by being self-righteous. It's like trying to get out of a deep hole by digging deeper. See, James isn't condemning the real faith of unfinished, inconsistent people. He's pointing out the counterfeit faith of people who claim to be fulfilling a law that none of us have fulfilled so that their message is judgment and not the mercy that frees us from judgment. James is saying, Show me your faith by actually having better news than the rest of the world. Show me a mercy that actually triumphs over judgment. Real faith confesses we all have issues. We all need grace to help us wrestle through those issues. That's what active faith does. The question is not what you do to save yourself. It's what God's gift of faith does in the person who is brought into Christ's life. There have been several people who have really stood as as, uh, the voice of Jesus to me at crucial times in my life. One of them, right here in Greeley, has been particularly helpful because we sit down together every other week to pray and when I tell him what I'm wrestling with he says, "Oh, I know what that feels like." And here's something that's helped me and it took a long time, so don't beat yourself up for needing time to get through it. Those words have been like water to the roots of my soul. Because he's telling me the struggle's real, but it's not hopeless. So what difference does it make in our relations with people who don't have faith? One artist told me that he was drawn to a radiance that he saw in another couple. And when he found out that they were followers of Jesus, it totally disoriented him. He he had always dismissed Christians as fools, unintellectual people. But the first people of faith that he really got to know were nothing like he had imagined. And as I talk with people about Jesus, I've noticed that their response to self-righteousness is overwhelmingly negative. As a rule, when someone is being self-righteous, we can feel it, right? And it it does not draw us to the Savior. When someone is talking down to us, it doesn't sound like heaven speaking. We know the difference between someone who makes us their fix-it project and somebody who cares about us as a friend, when we describe how we came to know the Savior and how He has changed our lives, we usually talk about people that the Lord has used in our lives, like the, the friend that I just referred to. Maybe you meet, uh, meet these friends on a regular basis, or maybe they come in and out of your life, but these are people who influenced us, and when I tried to think through those that have had that sort of role in my life, they don't all fit a common category, the, the one common characteristic to all of the stories is that Jesus made himself known to me through them. When we meet Jesus, it's usually through friendships. Instead of trying to be a savior, think of settings in which you really enjoy being with people. Maybe you meet friends in the coffee shop. Or maybe you sit with friends at your kid's soccer game. Or maybe you go hiking or you go fishing. Or maybe you play games at the dinner table. Maybe your friendships are with people that you work with, but you get together outside that time. Don't devalue those connections is what I'm saying. Don't turn away from friendship to do an artificial evangelism on the side. Pray for the Savior to make himself known to your friends. And if you don't have friends to pray for, Think about opportunities to befriend people who desperately need friends. Not one-time projects, but ongoing friends. And I'll give you a few examples just to stimulate your thinking here. I already mentioned international students, people from around the world who are right here in our own community. Elderly people who can't easily get out. Young mothers who can't easily get out. I think... Being a young mother is one of the toughest job descriptions in the world, seriously. Neighbors who don't know how to befriend you. coworkers who've never had anyone take a relational interest in them. Immigrants who need help learning English. The Global Refugee Center here in town and the Right to Read program are doing a tremendous job just matching up people to help, help immigrants learn to speak our language. You could volunteer through the Resource Center for Pregnancy. Here's one of the most vital. People who are suffering in the same way you have suffered. If you've suffered, you might know from experience how helpful it is to have someone else who understands your struggle enough not to minimize it, but just to walk through it with you. See, shame-based motivation has no part in any of this. It's not about looking down on others. It's about a whole different way of thinking. None of this is a have-to. These aren't requirements. But any of it might be a get-to for you. Because when it's about Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. You don't have to triumph. Jesus already did. But you might find out he's making you a participant. That's good news. Take a moment in prayer with me, then Brittany will come back. Jesus, it's my prayer that that we would walk out of here not feeling another burden that we simply don't have the strength to lift or the time in our hectic lives to fit in, but knowing you present with us, lightening that load making the situations that we are in all the more significant and relevant and worthwhile and joy-filled, and we pray for that. And ask in your name, amen.